Welcome to the aggressive life. You know, we're a few days out from my favorite holiday in the entire world, in all of world history. It's Thanksgiving. No matter what that holiday looks like for you, from maybe it's a huge family gathering or to take out dinner in front of your TV with a couple friends, there is an aggressive choice that you can make. And that aggressive choice is gratitude. <laughs> gratitude. Yeah, it's really still possible to be thankful. You wouldn't know it in our contentious atmosphere where everyone's trying to catch somebody else for being a hypocrite. Everybody's trying to point out how somebody else is stupid for believing the same things. Everyone is trying to see how the government is doing the wrong thing, whether you're on the right or the left. I mean, it's, I don't know that we've ever been in more ingracious times than we are right now. If you're going to choose to be thankful you're going to have to aggressively go against the tide of cynicism and judgmentalism in our culture. Bad, bad, bad stuff. Science is very clear that practicing gratitude is one of the healthiest things you can do. Studies have shown it improves sleep quality, reduces feelings of anxiety and depression. It lowers inflammation and the risk of heart failure. It, it even results in less doctor's visits. Not an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but a thank you a day probably keeps the doctor away. Today, we're going to talk about this with Aggressive Life's favorite historian, his name is Stephen Mansfield. He's not only Aggressive Life's favorite historian, it's uh, the Aggressive Life podcast host, one of his best friends of somebody who comes on the podcast. Stephen and I have developed a bit of a close uh, relationship over the years. So, so thankful for him. He's going to give us a refresher on the th historical Thanksgiving story. I say refresher for the vast majority of us. You've never considered the original history of Thanksgiving and how deeply spiritual it is. It is unfreaking believable. Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author of 25 books. He's an historian. He's a cultural commentator. He's a brilliant adept man. And most importantly, he's my friend. Welcome back to the aggressive life, Stephen Mansfield. It's so good to be with you. Thank you. Oh man. I'm, I, I, I was so glad that we could uh, get together for this because you impacted me in a huge way. I heard you someplace else talk about the historical roots of Thanksgiving and I sat with my mouth open like, oh my goodness. And then finally, this is the year where I get to share that with all the folks who are part of the podcast. So thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. My privilege, really. Have you, have you always had good Thanksgivings, like going back in your life and your history? Has Thanksgiving been a positive holiday for you or just a holiday? You know, it's always been a positive holiday. My parents really worked hard to make Thanksgiving special. My father, who was an army officer and often gone, uh, would be there at Thanksgiving. He'd have an apron on. He'd be cooking. He'd be happy. We'd be talking all day about things we were grateful for. We'd be talking smack about football games. Um, and, you know, it was one of the few uh, holidays, holiday meals at which my father would pray. Normally it was my mother, but my father would pray. And so it felt magical to me. And so as, as I got older and began to study history, I thought, what's the background of this thing? I don't have to do with pilgrims. What's going on? And I, I, gained, I gained kind of a fascination with, with the faith stories behind things we, uh, we do in our current society, that, that stories that nobody knows. So you're absolutely right. I just uh, dove in and began to master all the literature and found a fascinating story. Yeah, I, I had an awful Thanksgiving growing up. My parents, with the right attitude and heart, took us to Cleveland to see my grandmother. And 
and it was just an awful time, man. I, was, I would always get yelled at for certain things. I was sleeping on an uncomfortable couch for a couple nights. It wasn't a very loving home. I'm talking about my parents. I'm talking about the, the extended family over there. It was, it was just really, really odd and stressful. And then I got married and I could mindlessly carry on that tradition. And then I had a kid and then I, we kept doing it. And finally I realized one of my kids just got yelled at or scolded or something. And I kind of go, whoa, what, what is wrong here? Why in the world am I coming over here to Cleveland to do Thanksgiving? No, we're going to start a new holiday tradition. And I didn't start it just out of family preservation. I'm, I want to be a leader of my home and I don't want to subject my wife, and my kids to a holiday that wasn't something for me. And then when I made that switch, Steve, it was the weirdest thing. All of a sudden Thanksgiving opened up before me. It wasn't just yes. turkey and family. Like it's amazing. So, so talk to us about this. We, we have in our culture, this massive jump from Halloween to Christmas, you know, we have Halloween and all, and then Christmas, but there's no Thanksgiving holiday, which I'm thankful for, because it means we haven't commercialized it. I'm thankful for it because it can really be a pure spiritual holiday. Tell us why Thanksgiving is so awesome and so important. Well, without even diving into the history yet, Thanksgiving is so awesome and important because it's actually a day set aside by our, for, by our federal government for us to say thank you to God for what he's done in our history and in our lives. It's one of the purest holidays we have. It really hasn't been adulterated very much. You know, Christmas, we all know, has gotten commercialized and Easter's gotten commercialized. But Thanksgiving is still about a family around the table, certain foods, saying thanks to God, praying prayers. And if you don't, even if you don't know who the pilgrims are, it's fine. Uh, you at least remember that we're meant to be thankful on that day. And people have been doing this on American battlefields. People have been doing this on the American frontier. Uh, they've been doing it during wars. And so it's, I think it's one of the purest holidays we have. And, and by the way, when I talk a little bit about the original traditions, no problem that it's about food and football for most people. That sports and food actually fits into the original Thanksgiving. So <laughs> I think it's, I think it's pure. I think it's holy. I think it's American. And, uh, in fact, I've had an opportunity living overseas many times, uh, for Americans to bring, uh, nationals uh, from the nation that we're in in for a Thanksgiving meal, and it was transforming for them. They'd never seen anything like it. So I'm really grateful for the holiday, and I'm glad you're keeping, it, keeping a vision hub for it. You mentioned sports and food is a part of the original Thanksgiving. I, lo I love that. That's, that's awesome. Well, tell us about the original Thanksgiving, Stephen. All right, so you've got this congregation that's meeting in northern England in a place called Scrooby. Some of my students used to write Scooby-Doo. No, Scrooby. And uh, they're being persecuted by the government because they're Protestants, because they are people who don't want to be part of the state church. So eventually, I'm, I'm giving you the, the highlight version here. Eventually, this congregation up and moves to Holland where they had religious freedom. You could worship whatever you wanted to, kind of like today. But uh, while they were there, they had left all of their professions. They had, they had left the work they were trained for, and they all became laborers. So from 1608 to 1620, this group of people we eventually call the Pilgrims lived in Holland, a certain place called Leiden, Holland, and they worked as laborers. They worked on the cattle farms. They worked on the shipping yards. They worked just common laborers. Um, but they were a congregation. They prayed. They sought God. They believed they were in exile by God's hand. What's interesting about them is that normally you would think of a congregation living in exile, and by the way, a congregation where people are dying young, the older people were having to work manual labor, they were dying young, the, the society was quite libertine, so 
uh, the young, young, some of the young people began to stray away, you know, and go after some of the delights of the society, the secular delights. But while this congregation prayed, uh, you would expect them just to kind of settle in and, and live in exile for the rest of their lives. But as they began to pray, they began to get a vision from God for the natives in the new world. They were just beginning to get information about Jamestown and other settlements, Sir Walter Raleigh, people who had gone to what is now the land of the United States of America. And they were just beginning to get that information. And as they began to read that in the magazine articles and the journals and began to pray, they had a desire to take the gospel of Jesus to the natives of the new world. And that's what lit them up to decide to go to the new world. They were fine in Holland. They weren't being religiously persecuted. It's not true they were escaping religious persecution from there. What's true is that they sailed to the new world to reach the natives. And by the way, I should just add a little bit of color to this chat we're having and say, I am Native American. Um, so even though I, you know, not on a res and even though I don't have the, uh, the, the tight connection to that culture that others do, it means a lot to me that there were people of my blood line, um, up in my past, my ancestors who were, you know, living in paganism. And there were people in Europe hearing from God that they should sail the ocean to take the gospel to them. So whatever people try to criticize about the pilgrims, that's a powerful thought. It's something that lives in my family life. So then they came over the, to, to America to conquer and kill the Indians just like Columbus did. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what most people think, and it's not true. If there was ever a people who were not prepared to conquer anything, it was these guys. Uh, in fact, the story of how they got here is very interesting. Let me just tell you that real, real quick before we actually land on the Thanksgiving event. Yeah. Um, they, they decided to, to sail. They rented two ships, uh, the Mayflower and the Speedwell. You got to realize that the Mayflower was about the size of a volleyball court. It was a wine barge, not very, not very seaworthy, but they were going to trust God. The two ships loaded up with these, this congregation from, from Plymouth. They, they sailed back to England just for a little while to load on these ships. Sailed to, started to sail, and the speedwell took on water and finally proved itself not to be seaworthy. So they put too many people. It ended up being 104 pilgrims and, and uh, passengers on the, the Mayflower with 40 crew. That's 144 people, much too large for that, uh, much too high of an occupancy for that ship. And they sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. 144 on the size of a volleyball court. That's right. Think wow. about that. Just, just now, you have decks, but but guys, your your height, my height, can't even can't even stand up in those decks. They're they're very low, maybe four or five feet tall. So they've had such delays in England that they don't end up leaving until September. It's going to take sixty six days to sail to the New World, in water so cold the U.S. Navy tells us that you'll die after being in that water for three minutes, just three minutes. 66 days. Let's think about that. Just for a moment. It's two months and six days by our modern calendar. And they sailed across that ocean. And all kinds of things happened. It was wild. It was cold. It was woolly. It was storms. Some of the worst storms of the entire uh, period. But finally, they landed 500 miles off course. They were actually heading for Virginia, but they were way north of Virginia by 500 miles. And now they're in a wilderness. And I'll, I'll cut to the chase. Uh, they end up landing well, before you on get, December. Before you cut the chase, yeah. uh, weren't they called, you told me they were called puke stockings or something like that on the, <laughs> <laughs> the That's right. On the ship, there was a sailor who, who was the most critical of them. And his, his insult, insult for them was psalm singing puke stockings. And he called them that because those are the two things they spent the most of their time doing, singing psalms and throwing up. And uh, of course they threw up. These people are from farms. These people are from villages. And now they're on the first ship of their life, 
going across the transatlantic, the Atlantic. And the ship is just bouncing everywhere. Even, even, even some of the sailors died. That's how rough the sea, the sea voyage was. So, man, we talk it was about an adventure, man. I mean, everyone wants to be in some sort of adventure. Man, I, I think I'm pretty adventurous. I don't know that I'd sign up for a, a volleyball sized ship for 66 days. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Listen to this. Listen to this. Of those 104 passengers, 34 were children. And another 30 were women, one of whom was pregnant. Mm. So you have a minority of men, but since they're going to try to, to impact the new land, they're going to try to build a society, they felt like they needed to take men and women uh, as well as children. So the majority of that 104 are not men, women and children. And these are not so they, helicopter parents, obviously, to take their no, kids on something like that. Jeez. No. No, and they're trusting God the whole way. Well, anyway, they get to what we now know as the Cape Cod area of, of Massachusetts. That's what it would be called now. For them, it was a howling wilderness. And there's some beautiful literature that they wrote as soon as they got there about, you know, how in the world would we make it here without the Spirit of God? What happens is they, they realize they're in trouble. It's already snowing. They've got to quickly build some houses. They've got to get to it. But, they could, but they've got to have a bunch of guys who they'd really rather have been doing labor on the houses standing guard because they can see natives uh, in the tree line. They can see natives watching them. Finally, a big, tall Indian, they, he was about 6'4", which is my height. I'm, I'm considered tall in this area, so he must have been really tall to these, to these short Englishmen. He strode out from the trees walked up to the person he thought was in charge, greeted him in English, and then asked if he had a beer. Now, <laughs> that's the exact truth. That's what happened. His name was Samoset. He had been aboard ships of other English captains uh, exploring that area. He'd been taken to England already. He developed a taste for English beer, obviously, learned how to speak English. He'd come back to his land, found out that disease had wiped out his tribe, so he was with a small band of his tribesmen who intended to try to find somebody they could live with. And that's when the pilgrim showed up. So in the providence of God, the pilgrims sail around half, you know, quarter of the way around the world. They're going to starve if they don't get some help. And out comes an English speaking Indian who likes them, who's looking for somebody to hang with, who knows how to farm and how to harvest the sea and all of that and how to hunt. And by the way, he's got a taste for British beer. And that's that relationship eventually saves them. Is there another English-speaking Indian on the entire continent? Probably not. Not that we know of. Not that we have any record of. It's unbelievable. I understand maybe public school teachers not want to talk about beer when it comes to the Indians, but I think it's stunning that, uh, that I think in the providence of God, these people are met by an English-speaking Native American. I, I it's unbelievable. That's one of the great it's, connections in history. I know. It's utterly stunning. I think, uh, you know, before, we, as we continue here, let me just kind of throw up my um, uh, smoke flares to distract us from the normal objections we have, or at least speak to those normal objections. We're, we're, many people call America a Christian country, and that's very, very offensive to some. Uh, to some, it's offensive because. Not everybody who came to America was Christian, of course. And then to others, it's offensive because so much of our history has not been Christian. 
you know, going to a different continent and kidnapping yeah. somebody based on their skin and bringing them over here. There's, there's just a lot right. of like uh, appropriate angst over calling America a Christian nation. But when you hear the story of Thanksgiving, the fingerprints of God on the founding of our nation and on the people who actually came over initially is really unbelievable. I mean, seriously, you're, you've been puking for 66 days. You've been jostled to and fro. You don't know what, you're, you're not a sales person. You're having a hard, hard time. You land on this barren, utter, what looks like God-forsaken wilderness. And a person who's a native who understands the wilderness, the first person you talk to can speak your language. And it's the only one that we know of in the entire country. Entire country. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Jeez. Amazing. Amazing. Well, the, what goes on, though, that leads to Thanksgiving is that these guys have shown up late, even though the Native Americans are going to help them. Uh, still, they don't have enough food. They, the voyage took too long. They left too late. They weren't well provisioned. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that's heading towards disaster. But then they start planting. They start doing what they can. But now comes the moment that I want every American to remember. They call it the starving time because half of the pilgrims died, half of them, half of those who came over to be, a, but as they said, by building blocks of the, of the cause of Christ in the new world, half of them died. And I should tell you, by the way, that before they got off the ship, they signed a document together called the Mayflower Compact. Now it's very short, very easy to find online. So Google Mayflower Compact, and you'll read a statement that really puts a lie to a lot of our school textbooks that, that, that omit this story, um, because it says, we sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. That's an exact quote. We sailed for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. It's in the Mayflower Compact of 1620. It should be in every textbook that every, we ever teach history from. So these people came for Christian purposes. They came to spread the gospel. They came to reach the natives. The natives ended up saving them, but then half of them died. There wasn't a family that didn't have a death in it amongst all the pilgrims. Think about that. Of all those people I described who came over, minority of men, 30, about 30 women, about 34 children, uh, more than half of them died. So by the time you get to the planning time in the spring, you've got about 52 people and they are, they're scurvy ridden, they are emaciated, they're hungry, but they start planting. They start following the Indians. They start harvesting the ocean, harvesting the sea. And by November, they finally have an abundance of food for the first time. Uh, and they, they decide to have a Thanksgiving. And this is, this is exciting to me as a Native American because you only have about 50 pilgrims. But they decide to welcome their Native friends. And the Natives show up. This is one of the humorous moments in all of this. The Natives show up with 90 Indian braves. Well, clearly that could wipe out all the food, all the extra food they have. It's got to get into the new year. Uh. So the chief, the chief sends the braves out. They kill about five, six deer. They bring other pumpkins. They bring other foods. They teach them how to cook some things. By the way, this is the first time these Englishmen ever saw popcorn, mm. something the natives did that the Englishmen didn't know anything about. So when you do popcorn watching the movie on Thanksgiving Day, you're being very American. And they gave thanks to God. Now, what's, what, what the guys like to hear is they had wrestling contests. This, by the way, this went on for four days. This Thanksgiving went on for four days. And so they had wrestling contests. They had shooting contests. And at one point, I'm not sure that you want the children to hear this, but at one point, a food fight broke out. Uh, they were having such a rowdy time uh, that they started chucking apples at each other and things like that and had a good time. So 
Fall of 1621, November 1621 was the first Thanksgiving. Now, here's a little thing I'd just like to throw in to make sure that we were thinking about it right. It's a real lesson of American history. Many people say that what happened was, as they began to plant their harvest that was going to lead to the first Thanksgiving, that they, that they left a common plot of land and began to farm individual family plots. So in other words, you had kind of a free market kind of approach to, to growing food. But that's not true. The fact is that their, their investment firm back in London wouldn't let them not have collective farming. They all farmed the same plot of land. It took them two years to break from that and uh, to finally negotiate a new deal. And when they did, and finally each family, each individual even, could have their own plot of land and work it. They had to, they had to pay into the common amount of food, common store of food, but they could work the land themselves. The amount of food skyrocketed. And this left, uh, this created the foundation for the prosperity that that whole New England Puritan empire uh, developed. So my point is that while it's not true that the pilgrims at that first Thanksgiving had learned how to farm individual plots of land, and therefore we have a big free market lesson, it took two or three more years. But once they learned how to do it, once they renegotiated their contract, they did in fact go with a free enterprise approach to farming. And it dramatically increased the, the income, the food, the wealth they had. And it laid a foundation for all that we know of New, uh, New England Christian culture. So this thanks, Thanksgiving's a really significant thing. Symbolically, it's symbolic about faith. It's symbolic about Native Americans. It's symbolic about free markets, you know, things that would come in American history. Um, and it's certainly symbolic about as, as to God's, God's work in our lives. Okay, so you're saying they had to, what are you saying? You're saying they had to finance their ship voyage. And when they financed it with that institution, one of the covenants in the loan was a common plot that they would all work. Exactly. And then you're that was, saying- that was still, still the way of doing it back in England. And so they required it, required it of the Puritans and the pilgrims in New England. And then they adjusted the covenant of the loan to where now they divided up that land. People had their own thing, put their own effort and get their own food back. And that's when the economies took off and soared. No question. Fascinating. Yeah. It's a big lesson in American history because we've been the greatest exemplar in the world uh, of a free enterprise system that's just produced a a stunning amount. Well, socialism socialism is a great idea until somebody else's money runs out. Exactly. Exactly. It all sounds good. Hey, let's all get together and farm a common plot of land. But as you know, some people don't work as hard. Some people aren't as skilled as others. It just goes on and on. So finally, they got permission from their investors in London. And also, they learned some things about farming that they hadn't known before. And they had individual plots of land. And they, and they never had a starving time again. What's the story of Squanto? You mentioned Samoset. That's not Squanto. How did he come into being? Well, Samoset was the big Indian who met them, who spoke English, uh, who helped them initially and uh, taught them some things. But he eventually left and went off to be with his own people further north. It was Squanto who stayed with them for years and actually eventually died with the pilgrims. And William Bradford, who wrote the colony's history, said that he was a special token of God's grace for them. He said, without Squanto, we would not have the prosperity and the development that we had. He taught us how to hunt. He taught us how to fish. I mean, you know how it is. Fishing off the coast of Cape Cod is different from fishing off the coast of Cornwall, England. You know, you're just just in a different setting, different kind of fishing, different kind of animals, different kind of waves. And so Squanto taught them everything they needed to know. 
another another providential hand of God. This these stories are I never learned in school. I never learned any of this stuff in school, and I grew up uh, and went to public school in a time when America was much more religious. You know, I would have been taking grade school back in the seventies, uh, but yet I never, I never heard this kind of stuff. I'm pretty darn positive no one is hearing this stuff today, uh, and Thanksgiving's become more controversial than ever. Sh- should we celebrate it, Stephen? Is it demeaning to Native populations? Is it a forced religious holiday? Is our perspective on Thanksgiving really off? Should people like me who like Thanksgiving be thankful that other people don't celebrate Thanksgiving so I can have a pure version of it? What's your, what's your thoughts about this holiday? Uh, th- Thanksgiving is under attack because it's one of the holidays that's devoted to faith. And of course, as you know, there's a strong surge toward secularization in our society. But Thanksgiving, again, as I said earlier, is one of the purest of holidays. Uh, first of all, the Native Americans who helped the English settlers did so voluntarily. They quickly became friends. They shared resources. There was no conquering. There was no war. There was no killing. There was partnership. And they survived together for a long time. Now, I do want to, I do want to expose the trick that secularists use because I'm talking, everything we've been talking about happened in 1620. In 1690, 70 years later, there was a war called Prince Philip's War. And there was a conflict between settlers and Indians, and it got violent and so on. But I just want to point out that that's 70 years after the Mayflower landed, and hardly anybody, I don't think anybody, still survived from the Mayflower. In other words, we're not talking about the same generation. So it's almost like saying that the Mayflower is to be discredited because in Dodge City, Kansas, 200 years later, you know, you had conflict with the Indians. You did. Certainly there were conflicts between whites and natives. No question about that. But at Plymouth and in the Boston area and in the New England Commonwealth, it was peaceful. It was friendly. It was cooperative until 70 years later, two thirds of a century later, yeah, you had conflicts. So what they do is they say, look, this conflict happened and there was violence and there was bloodshed. And look, that, that, that blows back, that, that reflects a negative light onto the pilgrims. Not true. The pilgrims weren't warriors. They didn't have guns for the most part, except for hunting. They were land lovers. They were people like postmasters and what have you. You know, they were shopkeepers. Uh, they didn't come for violent intent. And when they met Native Americans, they understood these Native Americans as being a gift of God. And Squanto stayed with them for years until he died. And Samuelson helped them for one winter and then left. So, uh, and by the way, the, those two Indians also helped negotiate peaceful arrangements between the whites and the natives in the area. So it's not what they talk about. It's, it's, not, it's not some violent anti-Indian thing. And, and I, I, I say that because it's important that we understand that these people came because they wanted to share the gospel with the natives. That was their whole purpose, was compassion for the natives. And again, I'm not making myself the representative of the whole First Peoples uh, of all the United States, but I am, I am Native, um, and I attend Native councils, and I, and I know the thinking and read the literature, and I'm saying um, that Thanksgiving of all of our holidays should not be considered um, should not be considered in any way anti-Native American. You attend Native councils. What is that? Sure. Tell me about it. Well, I'm not fully Native American, and I don't live on a res, I don't live in a Native American setting. Uh, my uncle qualified for land from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, so we are significantly Native, 
And because I lived in Oklahoma for a long time, I wanted to know more about my, my, my native heritage. If I sent you a picture of my great-grandfather, you would say, well, that's, a, that's, that's Cochise, man. <laughs> that's, that's a chief. I mean, he's fierce looking. And, and so uh, I wanted to find out more about who I was, what was going on, what were the challenges on the reservation. There was a time in my life I thought I might, I might work on a reservation or become an Indian advocate. Um, so I attended some of the councils to learn how it would go and what the issues were and what the, what the, what the situation in Washington was regarding them and so on. So I care very much about Native American issues. And, uh, we absolutely know that, that natives, we, we natives prefer to call ourselves first people, uh, what, that the first people were mistreated. Um, no, there's no question about that. We all know that. I mean, the betrayals and taking of land and breaking of contracts and, and, the, and the great removal, as they call it, the Trail of Tears, and on and on and on. Uh, and yes, there were native atrocities against whites as well. It's, it's a sordid history. But uh, what, what I work to do as a Christian is try to get my native friends to give up their bitterness and begin to progress because the, the Native Americans are amazingly, stunningly gifted. And um, if we can just get, get free of the bitterness and get free of some of the economic oppression of government policies, I think we can do some good things. And by the way, uh, if we don't do something, uh, it's going to be, you know, salvation by casinos on the, on the reservations. And I don't think we're going to be happy with that in American history. Yeah, right. So what is it, though, that we as Americans are not able to celebrate Thanksgiving appropriately? What, what does that say about, about our spiritual condition? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I do. I think, first of all, we allow society, we allow the stores, the advertising, maybe the TV shows to define what this, what this history is for us, what this, what this holiday means. And I believe this is amongst our most Christian holidays. In fact, it's the only American Christian holidays. I mean, Christmas is Christmas for everybody in the world who's Christmas, uh, Christian. But for, for Americans, people in the United States, we only have one holiday that's laid aside to specifically merge faith and our history, faith and the love of our history. That's Thanksgiving. It's the only time that's set aside so we can thank God for what he's given us in our history. And I'm going to say something pretty, pretty strong here. I don't mean to be insulting, but I got to say for those of us who are Christians, it's our job to reclaim the stories behind Christian holidays. It's not the job of the society or the public schools to tell us that background. You're not likely to get the straight story from a public school. I'm not saying they're lying to you. I'm just saying it's not their job to tell you about the background of your own faith. So we've got to read the books. We've got to tell the stories. Pastors have to bring this stuff up in church. Uh, Sunday school classes should be teaching this stuff. And by the way, parents should be teaching it. Let me tell you something that I urge all the time when it comes to Thanksgiving, and it's made a huge difference. Uh, in New England, they long had a tradition after the years of the pilgrims of remembering the quote-unquote starving time, that period when the pilgrims almost all died out due to starvation. And they every day, those pilgrims during that period had a little bit of brackish water and five kernels of corn. So later in New England, after they had prosperity and after they wanted That's to remember all they the ate. starving time. That's all they ate every That's day. It. Contaminated That's water it, and five kernels of corn. That's it. That's all they had. During the cold, starving ice, the ground's frozen, the animals are all, you know, hibernating. I mean, that was bad. See, even the sea freezes up there, by the way, as you may know, because maybe you've been there. So later when they were prosperous, the families in New England wanted to remember the starving time and pass that heritage and that character on to the next generation. So there was a tradition. When the, fam when the food is there, the family's ready to eat, the table's groaning with food. The children would go around and put five kernels of corn on each plate. We actually did this in my, in my, the Mansfield family growing up. 
and my kids love it to this day. We put five kernels of corn on each plate, stand at the plate at the table, and make the beginning of the prayer an acknowledgement of the suffering and the forefathers and the pioneers and the heroes who laid the foundation. And then pray and thank God for our current lives and whatever you know we want to give thanks for, and then eat. So when my kids were young, they loved doing it like five-year-olds would love to do. When they were teenagers, they're like, oh, dad, do we have to do this? And then now my kids are both in their 30s. And if I start heading to pray over the Thanksgiving meal without having put the kernels of corn on the plate, I mean, my 30-year-old kids blow it and just lose it. They, dad, what are you doing? We got to do this. And so it's become a tradition. Now I've got grandchildren. They're doing it with the grandchild. And this, what this does is it connects contemporary Thanksgiving celebrations and families to the starving time of the pilgrims and a remembrance of what's happened. And then, of course, in a lot of the families that will do that, especially Christian families, they'll read the books, read the stories, uh, you know, watch the movies, whatever, and make sure the story is told. So it's, it's a, it, I think it's fine to watch football. It's fine to eat a lot. That's what the day's there for. And sports, as you know, is part of the history of, this, of the holiday. But my point is, take some time, yeah. tell the story, remind people of the heritage. It only takes a few minutes. And that little liturgy of the five kernels of corn really can keep a family awake to what's been the price that's been paid before them. When I first heard you talk about this years ago, I was really affected by it. And, and I did that and it was pretty cool. And then I just got away from it. Um, I'm glad we're talking right now because I'm gonna I'm gonna re-kickstart that this this year uh, and do it at my family. That's that's really that, that's really good stuff. I think the other thing that when you talk about this that is so oh gosh countercultural is here at the Aggressive Life. Most of the things that we talk about, in fact, everything we talk about, I think all of our episodes are the benefits that'll come to you if you're aggressive, the benefits will come to you if you take control of your life, the benefits will come to you if you're proactive, if you push. But the pilgrims, man, they weren't just thinking about themselves, they were thinking about future generations. Right. You know, it was, it was a, it was a multi-generational vision that they were laying their life down for, which is why they brought their kids over. Man, we don't, we don't think that way anymore. It's like, I, I want the life I want right now, period. And I'm not even going to have any kids because kids make my life more difficult. I'm not concerned about future generations. I'm concerned about right. me, myself. And I think as a country, as we drift away from multi-generational thinking, whether it be the size of our national debt or whether it be we're just not going to have kids anymore, we just got to recognize we're really detaching ourselves from a f practice of faith it's been very fruitful for generations. Well, this, this will blow your mind. This, that founding generation thought so much in terms of the generations that would follow them that we know from their journals that they would literally mark out. They, they considered the generation to be 40 to 50 years. So they would mark out what's the generation going to be that lives next. And then let's say they said, I'm just making this up now. Let's say they said this is from 1650 to 1700. They would pray for that generation. Then they'd say, okay, their grandchildren are going to be approximately 1700 to 1750. And they would pray for the generation that would live between 1700 and 1750. It was their way of saying, we're going to pray for succeeding generations. We're going to in intercede for the generations that are going to follow us. Because that's, that is what they were thinking. We actually have from their journals, their statement, that they expected that if they sailed to the new world, the founding generation would die out. The parents, the ones who first arrived, they would die out. 
But hopefully they said, we can leave the seeds of succeeding generations to bring victory to the cause of Christ. And that's how they thought. They thought in terms of planning generations. You know, I, I've done, done some things in business in Japan and talked to people, companies over there that have a 150-year uh, business plan. 150-year business plan. Well, you know, I know that we tend to, especially as American Christians, sometimes to think in terms of short-term, you know, Jesus is coming back in a few weeks, so maybe we shouldn't do certain things. But that's not how earlier Christians thought. They thought in terms of generations. They thought in terms of laying a foundation to win an entire continent for Jesus. They knew it would take centuries. Um, that's why they said, we sail for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. And they knew they would have just a little toehold of faith there in New England. But they believed that God would water those seeds and it would cover the entire continent. And it did take, it did take generations. It did take centuries. But that's what they were dreaming. That's what they were thinking about. And I want to say, by the way, because this will move some of you, that the pilgrims who celebrated the first Thanksgiving prayed for our generation. And again, in taking in that way I just described it, taking 40, 50 years and saying, okay, the next generation, now the generation after that, now the gen they prayed all the way through our current time. We have this actually written in their journals. Uh -huh. So they were interceding for this generation of Christians wow. that we would be, you know, that we would be fiery and make a difference and be, and be righteous saints. Man, unbelievable. All right, Stephen, let's do a little, um, let's do a little gratitude. Gra well, actually, before we do our gratitude round, it's normally the lightning round. I pepper you with things and you, you know, you get, we're not going to do it this way. We're going to do something different. We're going to do the gratitude round. I actually haven't even looked at this round. Dirt, our producer here, Dirt uh, is, gives these to me. So it's about things we could be grateful for. So I thought you and I would go back and forth and just model what gratitude and thankfulness looks like. But before we do that, is there anything else about Thanksgiving or the foundations of the holiday that we should touch on that we haven't? I just want to say to all your listeners that what we're not doing is saying, don't enjoy food, don't enjoy sports, don't enjoy family. Just add to it that layer of both gratitude and a little sense of heritage. It can be done with as little as five kilos of corn on a plate and 60 seconds of discussion by the family. I've seen it transform a family. So just don't want to leave the uh, that discussion with people feeling like, oh, I've got to completely rewrite my family's traditions. No, just add some greater ones to it and uh, and enjoy the day. Just about everybody wants to stand out or be countercultural, whether it's their clothes they wear or the political positions they take or find some cool indie band that nobody else knows of. We, we kind of we like that. I tell you what, if you decide to be thankful and have an attitude of gratitude, you will be countercultural. You'll be, who are you? And it's really wonderful and beautiful. So here we go. Here we go. I, I, I'll read it and then uh, I'll go first uh, and then you go real quick. It's a deal. Uh, Dirt has here something work related you're thankful for this year. Uh, well, I'll just do what's easy right here inside of the inside of the office. Dirt, I'm thankful for you, Dirt. I'm thankful for Caleb Mathis, who has really taken this podcast and made it something special. And it's because of all of your background work and your pre-work. And I just slot in and read from a paper and turn my personality on while you do the hard work of booking guests and mixing things and all that stuff. So I'm thankful for you, Dirt. Thanks, brother. Your turn. You know, I, this last year, I was asked to be a senior fellow of public leadership at Palm Beach Atlantic University in West Palm Beach, Florida. And um, I accepted it. And it is a role I love. I get to work with students. Uh, I get to help lead the guide the university. Um, I get to speak, uh, uh, teach leadership and teach much that I've written about history when it comes to leadership at Goldman Sachs and 
you know, in rooms full of politicians and all kinds of things. So I'm really grateful in terms of work. That's the big addition in my last year, and I'm really thrilled for it. That's great. Something family-related that you're thankful for this year. Uh, I'm thankful that my youngest daughter and her husband, who just got married this past year, that they actually live with us in a little apartment above our garage. It's been, it's been fantastic having them close to us because we love them. They're life givers, and they help us watch our dog, Peanut, too. That's fantastic. Well, I have my first blood grandchild, Lionel Chase Mansfield, born about a month and a half ago, and he's amazing. So that's my, in terms of family additions or family gratitude, that would have to be a new grandchild. One friendship you're thankful for this year. Oh, gosh, I'm gonna do one. Someone who just who just died. Uh, uh, a good friend of mine, student from college, Christophagio, my best friend. I would say in college. I just got a call two days ago. He died in his sleep. Oh, died sorry. in his sleep out of nowhere. I'm sorry. And it, yeah, yeah, it sucks. It especially sucks because. He, um, we had a tradition with them on Thanksgiving mm. that they would come over and spend Thanksgiving with us. And we did that for years and years and years and years and years. And then the last several years, we got out of the habit of that for a variety of reasons. And uh, um, I'm really thankful for him because whenever I was with him, he, he was a, a believer in me and an encourager. So I'm thankful for him and I, I will miss him dearly. I'm sorry for your loss there, buddy. Uh, sorry. Yeah, the friendship that I probably want most uh, thankful for um, is a man named J.T. McCraw. Uh, he's the best men's coach I know. He works with us in our great man efforts with men. Um, but he is not uh, intimidated by me. He's not enamored of me. He checks on me in all the important ways. I don't have any addictions. I don't have any, I don't have any big stuff. But, but I've told him, you can ask me about anything. And so... I, it, I, I, everybody in the world who listens to me knows that I like Oreos. And so JT will call me or text me on the road and just say, how are the Oreos? And he's not really asking about the Oreos. He's asking about, you know, food. How are you doing with your food? And, you know, I travel a lot. People feed me like a Hindu deity. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, he just, how are you doing? How's your workout? Uh, but he checks with me. We check with each other. We make each other sharper. It really is steel sharpening steel. And so I'm grateful for that relationship. One modern convenience you're thankful for this year. Oh, modern convenience. Man, Dirt, where are you getting these questions? Uh, oh, you're telling me what I should answer? He's holding up a gun like I should be thankful for the guns. I, 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 did, I did get a – I did get a – all right, fine. I'll bite. I'll bite. Uh, yeah, I just got this year. I got a, um, a 300 blackout. Uh-huh. Which, yeah, uh, I'm a, gosh, I'm gonna have to explain. Some of you would call that an assault rifle. It's not an assault rifle. It's a semi-automatic rifle that is great for hunting in Kentucky. And I just took it down to Kentucky to try to hunt whitetail, and I didn't get anything. But uh, it's really cool. I, I love the feel of it. I love. I'm I'm gonna go through the process and get a silencer with subsonic rounds. Because uh, a friend of mine has one, it's like shooting a BB gun target practice. Really, really fun. So that's just a fun wow. thing. That's a fun thing that I'm, I'm thankful for. 
I'd have to say this year, uh, it's going to sound unusual, but the thing, the technology I'm most thankful for are video cameras. We have two homes because we live in two cities, as you know, D.C. and Nashville. And we've just had some things happen in this last year that if we hadn't had video cameras, I'm kind of a nutsy about them. I put them in a lot of rooms and watch everything off the balcony and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't invade anybody's privacy, but um, but we had some things happen. Uh, both with plumbing and some other stuff, that if we hadn't had those cameras, it would have been an unbelievable disaster. So the system that we have that detects humidity, detects smoke, lets us monitor what goes on in our homes when we're not there, because I travel a great deal. My wife's with me, as you know. Um, so we've got two, you know, properties we've got to keep an eye on. And this last year, it may not happen any other year, but this last year, I mean, we would have had hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage if we hadn't caught something and sent somebody up there immediately. So... Those little, those cameras made all the difference. I'm always grateful for my iPad and my iPhone and my Mac and all that. But this, this year, cameras, that's big good. time. Something difficult you've walked through this year that's positively changed you. I think I'm just now, Stephen, getting the point where I can, I could say that uh, all things around COVID has positively changed me. I wouldn't have said that before. I would just say that it was a pain in the ass. And just very, very difficult. It still was and it still is. But I think what I'm I'm starting to see now, I think is my, my, my faith has been refined. I think that um, I've got a more pure dependence and appreciation of Jesus that stands against and is not the same as the organization that I lead and all the metrics that used to be true of it two years ago. So I think I've got a, I think I actually have a, uh, a more vibrant walk with Christ right now uh, as a result of the last year and a half. I'm just now starting to say that. I think that's the first time I've ever verbalized it, but that's about where I am right now. So I'll say I'm thankful for that aspect. Fantastic. I have been reading in the last uh, year and a half during COVID some Celtic theology, and I won't go into great detail of what that is, but basically the gospel went, when the Romans were up in the Celtic land, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, um, they took, they carried the gospel there. So Christian soldiers, Christian ministers, whatever, carried the gospel there. And then the Romans receded. The Roman Empire began to have problems. All the Roman soldiers went back on the continent. And so the kind of Christianity that developed up there through the following centuries was pretty amazing. It really, it really honored nature. Um, it, it welcomed the role of women. I know it's controversial, but it did. Um, I, I could just go on and on. It had a real strong vision of manhood and so on. And so I've been reading Celtic theology of late, and it really has helped me, mainly in terms of my, the uh, awareness of God. They, they absorb that, that Hebrew perspective that God is in everything. If you're baking bread, if you're hunting, if you're fishing, if you're laying brick, whatever, he's there. If you're changing a diaper, he's there. He's involved in that. Your work is noble. Um, and also that nature represents him, as it says in, you know, Romans 1, that, you know, all his divine nature and eternal purposes are revealed in nature, uh, eternal nature revealed in nature. So anyway, I've been, I've been dramatically changed by that in the last year and a half, dramatically changed. All right, last one. Let's do one more thing. Uh, something you're looking forward to next year that you can be thankful for. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say my wife and I are talking about taking a major um, overlanding trip. So when we have a rooftop tent over top of our truck and we're looking at a couple different spots to go to and ahead of time, I'm thankful not just for the trip that we're going to take, but I'm thankful that her and I have something to do together and plan about 
Uh, so I'm thankful for that. It may be Alaska. It may just be New England. I'm not sure where, but we're going to drive somewhere with our dog, Peanut, and have a good time. Fantastic. Well, as you know, I do a huge amount with the Kurds in the Middle East. So I'm in the Middle East often. I have not been in the Middle East for two years. And usually, almost every other month, I would be in the Middle East doing things, lobbying, working, you know, consulting, advising. So next year, finally, I'm going to take my kids and go back to the Middle East. And um, cannot wait. Cannot wait to be there and make an impact. And, and yeah, eat some good food. But that's not the main thing. Just be there and do the stuff I'm meant to do. Well, I'll tell you one more thing that I'm thankful for, and I'm not going to go into the depth here, but when Steve and I got together last at, um, we had dinner at uh, Jeff Ruby's in Cincinnati, a great, great steakhouse, uh, we both got beneath a veneer on each other, and I was sharing some stuff with you, Stephen, and uh, man, you have followed up with me, All you, how you doing on that? You texted me, what's going on with that? What's when, and you know, a lot of times when you talk with somebody, uh, they'll say, well, this is my friend so-and-so, but really you've met him once or twice. It sounds better that they're a friend, but you're, you, you did, you done consistent friendship stuff for me that you didn't need to do. You're just checking in on me. And I, I'm, I'm really thankful for, for you and how you've, uh, you've helped me, uh, the last couple of years. Thank you. Well, I'm not just trying to throw the pitch back over to you. I want to tell you that one of the one of the things I deeply, deeply admire about you and have been moved by is that you allowed a guy you were light friends with. We're deeper friends now, but at that time, you, you had just met me. And I, you allowed me to bore in a little bit and say, okay, is that getting solved? Are you on that? You know, that kind of thing. And you you received it. You took it. You you bought it. So if there's victories that you'll be telling people about in the future, that's that's because of your character and being willing to not just me, but take whatever other prompts from God you had to, to achieve a victory. So I'm proud of you, and I, I appreciate you saying that. Well, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. And we may as well just, I'll just tell them the, the issue is my addiction to vintage Barbie dolls. I just can't stop. <laughs> I can't stop buying Nobody's them. Nobody's believing going, that. Shut going up. into credit card debt over it. <laughs> All right, Steve, this has been great. Anything else you want to talk about? Anything else you want to even promote before our audience, before we give, the ba- give you back the rest of your day? No, man, I'm good. Check, out, check me out at stephenmansfield.tv and be grateful this Thanksgiving. It'll change everything. Stephen, you made a deposit into us. Thank you very much. I knew you would. That's why I wanted you on. So thanks. There you go, guys. Check out Stephen Mansfield, all his books, his podcasts. He's got a couple of podcasts that are really good. I listen to one of them regularly. He's got, he's got his website that he just talked about. He's a very, very deep man and very, very rich. There's too, too few of us who swim in the deep waters he does. You'd be well served to uh, rub shoulders with him digitally. So that's it. Hey, We'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this, why don't you give us a review? Man, the more reviews we have, the more likely it is that we have people who tune in and get helped. And the more likely it is that we can get really, really great guests. So go ahead and leave us a review. If you do, I'll be very, very thankful for you. If you don't, then I've had enough enough of you. We'll see you next week on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. 
So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.